Good morning. How are we? Good? Well, grab your Bible. We are in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. If this is your first time, we're glad you're here. And um, I'm not going to take the time to explain uh, the things that may be uh, different from maybe the last time you were here. But um, if you're wondering why this giant table's here and the whole setup, uh, grab last week's sermon. You'll get, a, you'll get a double bonus for doing that. Last week, we, uh, we talked about your Bible. And we asked the question, I laid out a few of the Bibles that I've had in my time, and we asked the question, is your Bible merely a coffee table decoration? You know that big, hefty leather Bible your grandma has on the coffee table that you're not allowed to touch? Is that how you view your Bible? Is it, is it merely decor in your home? Kind of like Frodo's ring. You keep it in there. Somebody gave it to you maybe for your wedding. But you keep it as a good luck charm on your coffee table in that room that nobody goes in. Or is your Bible to you kind of like that small thin line Bible I showed you that matched my shoes? Is it simply your, uh, your Sunday accessory? You grab it on the door on the way out Sunday morning and that's it. It goes now under the back seat of your uh, car and the floorboard there until you're scrambling around next Sunday to try and find it. Is that all it is? Is it a Sunday morning accessory to you? Or is it like uh, maybe this Bible here in the center of the table, this ancient artifact, right, this antique? Is that how you view Scripture? Is that how you view your Bible? Is it, is it outdated? Is it unrelated? Does it have nothing to do with your life right now, right here today? I, I hope none of those are your view towards your Bible. I hope, I hope your Bible is... What we saw last week, what Scripture calls our very life. It is our very life. It's, uh, it's probably too trite to call this uh, our playbook, right? But you've heard that before. It's our playbook. Maybe that touches on it. It's probably even too simplistic to say this is God's love letter to us. But maybe it's not too much to say it is our, it is our very life. Today, we start Ephesians, and we talked about last week your attitude towards Scripture because we're going to start in Scripture again this week. We're going to walk through the letter of Ephesians. I'm not going to bore you with all the background, the context, who wrote when, and all this stuff, where Ephesus is, and all about the culture of Ephesus. I'm not going to do that today, okay? I'm going to sprinkle some of that in so you don't get too bored throughout all of this series, but I'm not, I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm going to, uh, I am going to tell you, though, that um, pound for pound... Ephesians is probably the most important in your most important letter in the New Testament, pound for pound. Like, I mean, if you if you flip through here, mine takes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven pages. That's it, seven pages, pound for pound. It might be the most important letter in your New Testament. Maybe you've heard somebody say before, if you're if you're on a desert island and you only get to take uh, one book, what would you choose? And they say, well, choose the Bible. You need the Bible. Maybe you've heard it said before that if uh, if you become part of the persecuted church and they're taking all the books away and burning all the Bibles and you have one chance to open your Bible and tear out a section, you probably want to open up and tear out Romans if you can get to it, right? I would add to that, if you can't get enough pages to grab Romans, flip over and get the four or five, seven pages of Ephesians. Ephesians is like this condensed or concentrated version of the book of Romans, Pound for pound, the most complete statement of Christianity in our New Testament. The, the amount of depth 
and theology that Paul covers in this short letter is amazing. The economy of his words can only be attributed to the fact that there is a divine author behind the Apostle Paul. The fact that he gets so much out of so little can only be attributed to a divine author. Why do I take the time to make that point? Why do I take the time just to even say that about the letter to the Ephesians? Because if, uh, like I said last week, if you can hang on through this series on Ephesians, then you'll have it. You'll have all of that that I just said is jammed in there. If you can hang on, if you can take some time, read through, I want to encourage you, as we're going through this, go ahead and read through the entire letter on your own as we're going through it a little bit at a time. Get the whole letter in your heart and in your mind. But if you can hang on, you'll have like this handle, not only on the letter, but you'll have a handle on Scripture, on all of theology, on the point of it all, on the good news itself. You'll have a grasp on it. Today, just two verses. How about that? Can you handle two verses? Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 to whet our appetite. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know who Paul is, right? I'm not going to bore you with more on Paul. You know to be an apostle, as he says here, is to be one sent with a commission. You understand from just these first couple of verses that the one who sent him with the commissioning was Christ Jesus, was God himself. It's not by his own will that he's writing this letter or any of the letters that he writes for that matter. It's by commissioning as an apostle, one sent forth by the will of God. Now, who's it to? It's to the saints. Now, are you surprised that he opens the letter addressing it to saints? Saints are, if you think about it, I don't know what comes into your mind, but saints are dead people, aren't they? Don't you have to live a life of piety and holiness, die, and then sometime later be declared a saint? So then you're like, you know, like Saint Ricky or Saint Steve or Saint, no, no, Vic, Saint... Uh, it, it, if you get that title, doesn't it come after you've gone and maybe you've been gone for some time and you get, you, you get your life evaluated, were you, were you holy enough, were you pious enough, and then they look back and say, that guy, he gets to be Saint so-and-so, right? I mean, it's just a title that you get after you're dead. Why would Paul write a book to the saints? Aren't they dead people? Webster says this of a saint. The number one definition in Webster's Dictionary, it's one who officially is recognized, especially through canonization, as preeminent for holiness. Number two in Webster's, one of the spirits of the departed in heaven. There's some confusion on what it is to be a saint, but that's who Paul writes this letter to. Of course he's not writing it to dead people. He's writing it to the believers at Ephesus who are most certainly alive. Some time ago, the title saint, I would say, got hijacked. It's probably the best way to put it. It went from being a, a word that describes you and I as believers, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, to a title attached to the front of somebody's name long after they've passed on. Now you become a saint only after death and only after some religious organization through a process technically called uh, canonization. 
examines your life, your character, your conduct. And if you're found to be above reproach, and oh yeah, by the way, you've worked at least two miracles. You got to throw that in there. You might qualify to be a saint. One commentator said that it's interesting thought. That's an interesting thought, but you don't find it anywhere in Scripture. That's not what Paul's thinking about when he thinks about a saint. He uses the word for us and for the Ephesians nine times in this short letter. He calls them saints. These saints were alive, although he's going to tell us in chapter 2. They had once been dead in their trespasses and sins. There's no indication in this letter or any other letters that uh, these saints performed any great miracles, though they had experienced a miracle by placing their trust in Christ as Savior, he will go on to say. They and uh, we, right, because this letter is passed down to us, we're what you might call undead saints. We're the undead saints. The title saint is simply one of the words used in the New Testament to describe those who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. We also get called disciples, people of the way. Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. We are people of the way. But a saint is, just to be clear, someone who is alive, physically but also spiritually. The word saint specifically means those who are set apart. That's what, I, that's what Paul has in mind when he writes to the saints at Ephesus. Those who are set apart. It's related to the word sanctified, which also means to be set apart. Something has been sanctified. It has been set apart for special usage. When a sinner trusts Christ as Savior, he is taken out of the world and placed where? Physically. In Christ. The saint is the one who is in the world physically, right? We're still in the world, but we're not, John 17 says, of the world, are we? We're kind of like, uh, one commentator said, we're kind of like a scuba diver in that other world of the ocean, right? We're aliens in a strange new world. And we survive only because we have, we have gear that keeps us alive in this alien world. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, placed our faith in Christ, then we, in a similar way, we're aliens in a strange world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We put on Christ in order to manage through life. We live and breathe because the Holy Spirit resides in us, and we can live and breathe in the world. Saints are set apart in Christ. Aliens. Scripture calls us foreigners in a strange land. Listen, 27 times in this, these few pages, 27 times, Paul's going to say that we are in Christ. We are in Him. Saints set apart in Christ. That's us. So uh, now, more important question. How is it, how is it that you get to be a saint. <laughs> How is it you get to fall under the category of to the saints? How does that happen? What's the process? If it's not long after I'm dead and gone, I get the title of saint so-and-so, where does it come from? How is it that Paul can, can write this letter to these people 
Jew and Gentile alike. None of them perfect. None of them saints. Maybe in the way we would think about it. But how, do, how does he call them saints? Two words in these verses that I think uh, give us some clues. The first word is faithful. Faithful. Verse 2. Or verse 1, the end of verse 1. To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Literally, it just says, to the saints who are at Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. These aren't two different people. They're not to the saints and to then the faithful. It's to the saints, the faithful in Christ Jesus. It's the same person. Let me tell you what this isn't saying. He's not saying that you are saints because you have been faithful. You have labored faithfully for Christ. You are faithful in Christ. There's a difference. You're not saved because they live faithful lives or because we've lived faithful lives, but because you've placed your faith in Christ and were saved by Christ. It's another way of saying that they are in the faith. Now, to, to get the idea from this that he's saying that they're not just saints, but they're faithful, they somehow worked their way to faithfulness, and so they get to be included as saints, would be to dismiss the rest of the letter. Because the rest of the letter, the context of his whole letter, is going to prove that out. That you do nothing to earn the title of the faithful. What he means here is, is that we have very simply placed our faith in Christ. We're set apart in him. Our faith is in him. First word's faithful. The second word is grace. Grace to you, verse 2. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, if put simply, is the kindness of God to undeserving people. The kindness of God to us, undeserving people. That's grace. And Paul uses that word in this short letter 12 times. 12 times. Grace. Grace. How are you saved? You're saved by grace. In chapter 2, he's going to say this. That it is by grace that you have been saved. What is grace? The kindness of God to undeserving people. It's by the grace of God that you have been saved or set apart. That you have been, been declared a saint. It's by the grace of God. And it is through what? What's the next word? You know it? Verse chapter 2, through faith, being the faithful, placing your faith in Christ, set apart by grace, through your faith. He goes on to say that, that what? That faith, that faith that grace comes through is not even of yourself, lest any man should boast or lest any man should think, you know, I mustered up this faith myself. So verse 1, is he saying it's anything I did? No, it's nothing you did. It's nothing I did. We're declared saints, set apart. By the way, that idea of being set apart, it's, it's passive in nature. It's not active. You know what I mean by that? If you're, a, if you're a passive participant, you're involved. You're present. But you're not active. You're passive. Something's going on around you. You might even actually be involved, but you're not the... You're not the initiator of the thing. The idea of being called saints, being set apart, infers that God has done the setting apart of us. We're passive participants 
He does the work. Saints, faithful, we're in the faith. We're saved by grace through faith. And that faith even is not of ourselves, but it's a gift. He hands it to us. It's from God. He's the active initiator. He's the active agent in the whole process for us getting to fall under the category of St. Jim, St. Melissa, St. Plug in your name. Now, is there any theology in these first two verses? I, I think so, and, I, and we're, just, we're just touching on it. The default of all humanity is, however, to view our relationship with God as a two-way deal, isn't it? I mean, that's just our natural tendency. This is a two-way deal between me and God. It's a contract we have. It's a contract in which some of us have promised to be more good than we are more bad. And in return, God promises to let us into heaven. We believe that we have contracted out this deal with the old man upstairs. That our good will outweigh our bad. That the scales will tip in that favor when we stand before him. And he'll say, good job, come on in. To be saints, however, means something different in Paul's mind. It means that God has actively set us apart. That we have placed our faith, a faith he gives us, in his grace. A grace that is from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. You know what it says there after that? Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God. Peace. I mean, that's, that's what we're after in this thing, right? It is a peace with God. You notice, though, it doesn't, it doesn't just say, though, that we have a peace with God. That's inferred. But it specifically says we have peace from God. As saints, Paul writes this letter to us, reminding us that we're the set-apart ones. We've been set apart. God's doing. To the faithful ones, not that we've been diligently faithful, but that Christ has been faithful to do what only He could do, and we place our faith in His finished work. And so what's the result? It's peace. Not just with God, but it's a peace that comes from God. It's His doing. It's His activity. It's His work. It's not your effort. To the saints at Ephesus. Faithful. In Christ Jesus. Grace. Peace. A peace that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The story of Scripture, and in our case, Ephesians, is that God has done the deal, and you are the recipient. And this whole letter is going to flesh that out. By the time you get to the third chapter of Ephesians, he's going to beat that horse to death. But that's exactly where he starts. Saints. You, by no doing or earning of your own, are declared saints. You don't get the title because we evaluate your life. We see if you are holy enough, pious enough. You don't get the title by pulling up your boots and working hard. And then at the end of your days, we evaluate, was he better good 
than he was bad. Did he work a couple miracles over here? Did he, did he meet all the criteria and now he gets sainthood? No. You get it by the work of Jesus Christ alone. By placing your faith in his grace. You tell me, which deal's better? I mean, just think about it. Which deal is better? You working to one day stand before God and hope that the scale tips your way and wondering until your very last breath if you've done enough good. Or you plead guilty. You plead guilty and say, thank you. Thank you for your blood. As we sang earlier. Thank you for your cross. You want to know what the good news is? The good news is is that you don't have to risk it in the scales. The good news is is that we can be declared set apart, saints, faithful ones. Not by our doing, but by God's grace, grace towards undeserving, undeserving humans like you and I. Simply by putting our faith, resting in the work of Jesus. Um, this beautiful lady up here on the screen, that's Hetty Green. You might know who Hetty Green is. You ever heard of Hetty Green? She's a pleasant looking one, isn't she? Anybody got any idea who Hetty Green is? No, nobody? Nobody knows? Nobody in the sound booth might know? Is she a businesswoman? Very good. These guys were back there, Wikipedia and Hetty this morning. Hetty's known for being a shrewd businesswoman in her day. It was some time ago, as you can tell by that photo. But if you want a story on somebody who was filthy rich but didn't live like it, she's your illustration. Henrietta. Uh, I read one, one piece of info that said um, her net worth at her passing would be in the billions in today's money. Billions. But it also said that she wore the same clothes all the time. She put, picked black because it wouldn't, wouldn't uh, stand out as much. Uh, when she would have her people wash her clothes, she would have them only wash the hem down where it would drag on the street and get dirty so not to waste money on using too much soap. Uh, one story said that she ate oatmeal and heated the oatmeal by the furnace in her office because she didn't want to spend money on anything more elaborate than that. She was a penny pincher, and yet she had millions one story, and it's debated, says that our son had, uh, had a trouble uh, with his leg and she waited so long to try and get into a free clinic that his leg ended up having to be amputated. It goes on to say that she even died herself arguing whether or not it was worth extra care for her to spend on, on herself. You get, you get the point here? She was filthy rich. But by all indications, she didn't know it. She didn't know she was. She had no idea of the limitless wealth she had in her day. Ephesians is going to say, from the very beginning all the way to the end, that you and I are filthy rich. 
by the grace of God. Not in your wallets, but you're rich in grace and mercy. Listen to this. Down in verse 7, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just give you a glimpse forward here. Listen, verse 7 of chapter 1. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance of the saints. Chapter 2, verse 7. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing, what's the word? Riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 8. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Verse 16. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. We're filthy rich. Not in our own doing. Not in our own being. Not in our own striving. Paul wants us, the saints at Cornerstone, to know that we're saints set apart by the very sovereign act of God Himself. And we sit back and enjoy and praise Him for the grace that He has bestowed upon us undeserving ones. And we simply say, I'll take it. I'll take it. That's faith. I'll take it. My faith is in the riches of your grace. The riches that are in Christ Jesus. We're filthy rich. But many of us, (laughs) we live like, uh, oh, what's her name? We don't make use in our everyday living now, okay? On your Monday, on your Tuesday, on your Friday night, on your Saturday night. We don't employ what the Word of God says we are. We don't live like we're viewed by our Father. He sees us set apart for for special use. And yet we're we're dilly-dallying around in the world as if, as if He hasn't poured out His riches upon us. The worth of God's work through Christ is immeasurable, church, Christian. The worth of the work of Christ is immeasurable. Let's not live mediocre, poor Christian lives. What He gave... What he accomplished is more than casual Christianity for you and I. I'm sorry, it is. He didn't purchase with his blood the right to our lives for us to spend our days in casual relationship with a Savior, with a creator of all heaven and earth. A casual relationship with the one who from the very foundation and before of this world has set a course for our redemption, that is insufficient. A casual relationship with that God is all insufficient. 
And yet he says his, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. What does he want? He wants a love relationship with us. He's not asking us to scramble in our faithfulness so that we tip the scales before we get to heaven. He asks that we place our faith and our love in the one who first loved us. And we live. We live free. We live free. To the saints at Ephesus, faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer is this, that um, your word would be effective in sharpening us. That we wouldn't see a separation between today and tomorrow. That we wouldn't, we wouldn't live in this world separate from our church world. What you accomplished for us, dear Lord, is, is immeasurable. And your, your blood deserves all of us, wholly and completely, fully and free. Father, wherever our lives are mediocre, wherever we are living a poor Christian experience, would you in the next moment before we leave and go back to whatever it is we have planned and whatever we do with our Monday through Saturday, before we go, would you speak, Holy Spirit, to the hearts of those who have claimed grace and peace through Jesus Christ? And would you challenge us? Would you make clear to us where our lives differ from what your word says? Would you make clear to us where we live in mediocrity? Would you make clear to us where you're calling us to make changes? Well, we do, as we sang earlier, we thank you for your blood and we thank you for your cross. We don't take either lightly. So Holy Spirit, speak. Change us before we get away. And we can tune you out. And we can get busy once again. Say what you, what you need to say to our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name.